Welcome, my friends. Welcome to my world. I'm your host, Kevin Rutherford. It is time for another episode of our Toxic Superfoods Oxalates mini-series. Joining me again, Sally K. Norton. She's the author of Toxic Superfoods. Sally, welcome back. Thank you, Kevin. Great to have you here. You know, I know I've congratulated you on the book, but I'm going to do it again. You've made quite a stir in the uh, the, the natural, uh, functional practitioner world. A lot of people who maybe really weren't paying attention to oxalates are talking about it now. Oh, that's good news. It Excellent. Is. It is. Yeah. You know, it. it um, we have a lot of... Uh, practitioners, some doctors, nutritionists, a lot of people that have, have kind of gotten involved in this. And it seems like, you know, I've been watching this for about eight going on nine years now. And if I look back, it really kind of started more of a paleo movement. You know, people were talking about paleo hunter gatherer diets, not really focused on carbs. Uh, and then we started realizing, look, you know, you could still eat one of these hunter-gatherer diets. And if you're not careful, there could be a lot of carbs. So we weren't really seeing, you know, metabolism improve as much as we wanted to sometimes. And then we started talking about maybe lower carb paleo, you know, cutting back some of the carbs just, just for that reason, for blood sugar control and metabolism. And then we realized there were people sick enough where that didn't seem to help them as much as we had wanted. And we moved lower and lower carb. So we started talking about, you know, a keto diet, which is really just eating so low carb that your body produces ketones. I mean, that that's really all that means is we're, we're keeping our carb count low enough that our body goes into ketosis and starts producing ketones. And then we saw better results, but not everybody. And there were even some people that were promoting, you know, keto diets that were really plant heavy, you know, good fats, no junk, no grains, but they were really plant heavy. Um, You know, uh, Dr. Hyman comes to mind and uh, Dr. Will Cole, and both those guys do excellent work. But we started realizing, I think, or or we did, you know, and some of the other practitioners I worked with that. Two things when we cut out of the diet or really, really minimize them, things got better. Carbs and for some screwy reason, plants. And the carbs kind of made sense. We know that, you know, a lot of carbohydrates really aren't available in nature. So when we ate a hunter-gatherer diet, it was probably low carb just by default. And we've evolved that way. But the plant thing was, um, that was a little confusing and I think it's probably still one of the bigger arguments in kind of the functional world. You know, we we argue a lot about dairy because technically it's not hunter-gatherer or paleo, but we think for some people it's healthy. But the plant thing, I I think we all struggle with. You know, I, I think we have had this pounded into our head our whole life that vegetables are healthy. And they're really not, right? Isn't that a big part of what we're talking about here? That's what's so turned your brain inside out, you know, and I do think you've well outlined this progression that those of us who have been in the kind of healthy eating world have been doing the last 22 years or so, you know, going more ancestral in our thinking and recognizing that the modern foods are really a problem. And we have to think, what did human beings really come along on as we grow up as species? And then, you know, recognizing with our middle-aged bulge in the middle that we've been sitting around and 
front of a wheel or a computer in letting the middle get all soft. And if we get rid of the carbs, we can tighten that up and start to look like ourselves again. But then there's this, sometimes when you do that, you get thicker. (laughs) You might look better, but you don't feel better. Right. And that's because the answer for weight loss has been for a long, long, long time, salads and green stuff and vegetables. Because if you look at the calorie counts, they're low calories, right? Right. So you can't overdo vegetables because they don't have any calories. You can have all you want. (laughs) And we've been in that mentality really since the late 1960s. True. With a sort of twiggy mindset and the women's magazine kind of world of teaching us all to think about calories instead of nutrition. You know, that's a and really... we never really take an interest in the potential downside of the theory that low-calorie vegetables are safe and you can use them in an infinite kind of way. And that is getting us into big trouble and people aren't willing to recognize it. You know, that's a really good point. And I don't think I've seen that point made a lot. You know, we, we, we've started to question, you know, vegetables a lot more now for different things that are in them. Phytates and lectins and oxalates and and we wondered why were we so brainwashed into thinking that these were healthy well you know it, it was natural so that that seemed right you know it's a natural food i can go out and find it in nature although um, i would really challenge somebody to go find broccoli in nature I, i've never seen it or I, celery been, or cauliflower yeah yeah i've hiked all over the country in a lot of places spent a lot of time out in the woods Ever since I was a kid, I have 60 some years or coming up on that. And I I have never seen much of anything out in the wild that you can actually eat. You really don't find a lot of things in nature. It's always like a a surprise if you run into some ripe raspberries. Wow, we're walking along a road and there's some ripe raspberries. But that only occurs for two weeks in (laughs) August or something. It's not. It's right. not a day-to-day occurrence. Yeah, I, you know, and Yeah, maybe. so, you know, most of the produce has been invented by humans. So the wild carrot is an inedible, completely inedible, and it was through some form of plant breeding, and some of it is so pre-Renaissance era breeding that there's not a lot of history of how the carrot came about, for example. But the tomato, potatoes, celery, the, the cabbage family vegetables, they're all a result of human manipulation of plants and careful development of the technologies of agriculture. And all of our modern fruits are completely through plant breeding and careful technologies. They're not natural in any way. You know, maybe we should talk more about that, that these things aren't really natural um, and a lot of things have gone wrong. You know, one of the plants that I've noticed living here in Oregon um, we do have a lot of wild carrots. Have you ever seen a wild carrot? Only in drawings. So I've probably been pointed out to me because you can you can tell the leaves. It looks like Queen Anne's lace. It that's one of the reasons they're so easy to find. They're so identifiable by the green tops. They look just like carrot tops. And and I started noticing that I've had them all over. I mean, they just pop up everywhere around here. But it's so crazy. They will have this beautiful, lush green top, nice and big. And I'll go to pull it out, and the carrot is the size of the uh, the inside of a big pen. I mean, it's this long, skinny. <laughs> root kind of thing. And yep. as soon as you pull it up, you go, oh, yeah, it's a carrot. I can smell it. They are awful. 
they're so bitter and sharp and uh, they they and you'd have to eat about 50 of them i mean that's a wild carrot i've even taken them and, and they're and, very woody they're very kind oh, of fibrous not they, something you really want to chew on not at all and and the taste is so mm-hmm. strong and so bitter and i've taken them and and tried to you know cuz around here our soils horrible so where they're growing naturally they're not growing very well they get nice beautiful tops on them but i've taken them and then transplanted them into my garden and and to see if i can get these things to grow and i kind of can i can make them bigger but they actually get worse. They get even stringier and, and tougher and more bitter. Wow, that's such a cool experiment. Good for you. Yeah, I wouldn't eat one. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even sure if I could. Literature. I'm sure if I were starving, I could force them down, but it's not at all pleasant. It wouldn't but, hold uh, you for long. Yeah. So, you know, maybe we should talk more about, you know, the fact that, that, vegetables, the vegetables we have today really aren't natural. Uh, the fruit we know certainly isn't. I've seen pictures. Like the Model T and and the uh, Audi whatever, you know, it's, <laughs> we've invented transportation modes like the bicycle and the car. And no one would say that nature gave them to us. You're right. Good point. But we don't say that about tomatoes and carrots. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'll, I'll go back to that kind of progression we've been through. And I remember, you know, I have a lot of practitioners and doctors on my show. I've been doing this for years now. And and this progression, I can remember the reaction of many practitioners when they first heard Sirius talk about a carnivore diet, just eating meat or animal products. And everybody had kind of that same reaction. That seems a little extreme, You know, and I was trying to keep an open mind, but it seems kind of extreme to me. The progression seems to be, and it's hard for any of us to to really dispute this, is it just seems like when we got the worst cases, the people that had two autoimmune conditions and their thyroid was all messed up and their blood sugar was out of control and they were constantly sick, and we would try paleo and we'd see little results. And then we'd go, well, you know, let's do a little more keto and try that. And we'd see results around blood sugar. And then we actually got to trying some carnivore with these people and everything got better. And and it was just too hard to deny. And then we started saying, look, this is a really good short-term therapeutic diet. Well, maybe it's really a good long-term lifestyle diet. Yeah. Yeah. That's the big question. You know, people wonder what's the durability of primarily building your diet around hunting foods you can get through hunting. Yeah. Um, it should be a fairly easy question to answer because we have all the, all, if you go to natural history museums and they show the diorama of the caveman, he's wearing skins and using bones as implements and the tortoise shell is a bowl and, and clearly it was the ice age and there wasn't any, there's never broccoli and spinach in the diorama. There's a chance that humans relied heavily on meat um, during certain times in our history. And the people who are looking at bones and doing these carbon studies suggest that many of these bones are suggesting chemically that 90% or more of the diet was meat and these old bones. It sure seems like it. It really does. And I know we, we've argued this a lot, even within the natural health community. We still kind of debate this, you know, how many plants do we really need in the diet? 
the what a rabbit hole you can go down if you start studying fiber, right? Yeah, well, <laughs> we've we've really grabbed onto the fiber notion as strongly as we have the vegetable notion, and without a lot of really strong proof that the fiber is really that needed, but with lots of potential drawbacks to the fiber and. The drawback conversation is never popular on any of these nutrition topics. We don't want to discourage people from plant-based eating. There's been um, just a long-time embrace of the idea that if it's materials coming from plants, it can't be bad. Right, right. And, and you know, I know we use a lot of anecdotal evidence. I do. And, and you know, I, I realize we're supposed to have trials and studies, and but you can go look at the trials and the studies and you can find proof of anything you want to prove. And they can all look like they're high quality studies and all that, but you can go find support and evidence for anything. And anecdotally, I think most practitioners have just found this works. Yeah, but let, let's go back a second. Let, let's break down some of the foods we've talked about in the past. And, you know, we started kind of saying, should we really be eating all these grains? And we looked at grains as a food source. They are very lacking in nutrition. I mean, there's not much nutrition there to begin with. Then we process them and, and make it worse. And then we, uh, we've we hybridized we'll make them. make it safer, actually, because we're getting rid of the anti-nutrients in the fiber. Right. <laughs> to turn, all of Asia uses white rice. <laughs> exactly. They don't yes. use brown rice. Brown yeah. rice is sort of a Western idea that's been floated for the last 50 years and completely embraced by everyone in the last 30 and, and certainly the last 20. Yeah. And in a sense, I mean, you can kind of see why. Again, we were trying to stay natural, right? If this is the way nature produces this grain, shouldn't we eat it that way? Should we strip all of this stuff off of it? But you're right. We actually made it safer, but at that point, there's virtually zero nutrition, and there are still problems. We know there are right. proteins. Just calories. Yeah, there are. You're right. It's empty. Well, not even empty calories. I mean, we'd have to call them kind of negative calories or bad calories in a way because we still have proteins that in some of these other grains, not white rice, but we might have proteins that are really a problem. Gluten, um, gliadin. There's there's a bunch of them. So you look at this food and you think, why the hell did we ever eat this? It, it's a lot of work. Well, the, so we developed technologies, you know, to get around those things by doing fermentation. So you, you would normally do a sourdough kind of bread. You, you, it's a big deal that we that Jews couldn't process their bread and ended up with matzah because bread should sit around for a while and <laughs> ferment. Right. Um, and if you interrupt those technologies, like we had developed technologies for getting rid of the bran and then soaking the grains and then grinding them and fermenting them again and turning it into sourdough so that the bacteria could pre-digest some of the heart. Well, first of all, the soaking takes the seed from the state of dormancy, which is a certain chemical state, to a state of activation that's beginning the germination process, which is a different a chemical state, metabolic state. And so those proteins and elements in there are changing and you're turning it into sort of a pre-sprout. And so you're no longer eating the dormant seed that's designed to be indigestible. These are all seeds. They're designed to be dormant for thousands of years. Some seeds can still sprout after a thousand years of dormancy if it's had some special rarefied treatment. Yeah. Um, 
seeds are built to withstand, you know, the trick right now. Right now where we are, this is February. Everything looks spring-like. We have um, 15 sprouts of asparagus in the backyard that are ready to cut. And in probably five days, we'll have a snowstorm, you know. So it's easy for seeds and things to get tricked by weather and so on. But seeds are clever. Yeah. And they know when to sprout and when not to sprout. But we've learned that if we keep them the right temperature and the right moisture for three or four days, they'll start to sprout in three or four days. And then we're ready to take the next step in either high pressure cook heat to, to kill the lectins or then turn it into a flour in a dough and ferment the dough. And then we bake it and cook it. You cannot eat raw grains. They always have to be cooked. And before that, they have to be soaked. And before that, you know, then they have to be like these, all these technologies we've developed to invent bread and other grain products. And we think now, oh, well, that's just old wives' tales. We don't need all that. Factories can do it. And this, if you take this seed into a lab, it has twice as much minerals and twice as many vitamins if you leave the bran on it. The problem is those minerals and vitamins have absolutely no value because you can't digest them, especially in the way we want to just throw them in a pot, cook them, and eat them instead of soak them and process them. Yeah, yeah. Good point. So, so it's even worse now because factories are turning out things like lentils, which are the worst high oxalate. I mean, lentils are low in oxalate, but high in lectin. Right. And you take a quick process lentil from a factory and you make a quick process where you pour boiling water on it and you eat it and you end up injuring people. There was a product that came out last year with this lentil crumbles or something. People got really sick on that. Wow. Poorly factory process like this instantaneous kind of approach to food is completely at odds with our tens of thousands of years of messing around with plants and learning how to eat them safely. That's a good point. And, you know, and I was kind of, that's kind of where I was headed with the whole grain thing. You know, we started eliminating those out of our diet because the harder we looked at them, the worse they became. They had no nutrition by the time we got down to the grains we eat today. They've got all kinds of health problems, the carbs, the lectins, it's, it's a mess. So then we started saying, okay, well, we'll get rid of those and, and let's eat, you know, more animal products, which is good. And that was a radical idea for people 20 years ago. Like no oh, grain diet, really? I, I, yeah. I can't even imagine it. 10 you years ago when I first heard it, I thought it was pretty radical. No grain diet. And it was shocking. Yeah. Yeah. It still is. I, so we have to remember as practitioners that, you know, sometimes the people we're dealing with are hearing this stuff for the first time. And they're as shocked or more shocked than we are. Um, so I, I try to always keep that <laughs> yeah. in mind. And, you know, then we started saying, well, look, you know, we're, we're going to do this keto thing. We're going to go real low carb. You got to get rid of the grains. So what are we going to eat? You know, we can eat fat, but you got to eat more than just fat. So fatty meat, that's good. And then we kind of said, you know, when it comes to vegetables, for the most part, eat whatever you want. If they're below ground, you should probably be careful now it's not really the carbs anymore we're worried about in vegetables. Most people, by the time we kind of fix our metabolism and get healthier and get our blood sugar under control, we'd be able to handle that number of carbs just fine. I mean, I, I'm For pretty, sure. In the squash or... Yeah. Yeah. I'm pretty metabolically healthy these days. I don't have any blood sugar issues. I can eat things that are higher in carbs or sugar even and not see those big blood sugar spikes because I've got good blood sugar control. Now I started looking right. at... Well, you know, we, we like carbs. Yeah, we do. Genetically designed to adore sweet things. 
because they're very rare in nature and nature is trying to encourage us to take a little carb hit now and then and really go for it because it can lower stress in the liver. It can, and people get addicted to carbs because they're comforting. They really help take stress down in your metabolism. So little bits of, you know, blackberries and squash and roots and things, that was good for us when those things were rare. But when we invented grains and then made grains so easy to get and cheap to produce, you could just have pancakes and toast and pizza and pasta and just constant, constant right. empty glucose in the form of starch, that is really toxic. Yes. But, you know, we do probably do well on some carbs here and there. That's why we're built to love them. The I think so, it, too. And it gives us right. an instant comfort hit. And we always... We always try to get people to a place where if they choose to eat some of those things, and I certainly do, I, I eat those foods. You know, I do say when when I really want to feel good or I want to perform better, I, I go heavier keto or heavier carnivore, and I feel better. My energy levels go up, but throwing in those carbs, you know, if you know what you're doing is for metabolism shouldn't be a problem. But what we started to identify was, well, wait a minute, vegetables aren't that simple. There, there's a whole bunch of stuff we have to pay attention to here. You had mentioned lectins and phytates and oxalates. And we, really all of these things are part of the chemicals or the plant's chemical defense, right? Yeah. And, and we really could learn much more about what the plants are doing with their thousands of chemicals and the, you know, like the top 15 or 20 that are known to be toxic to humans. And most of them cause some degree of gastrointestinal damage, liver damage, and are, I mean, it's like plants are going to get you in the gut. And overdoing these plants, especially in the way we want to do it now, without all that fermentation and preparation and high heat and slow cooking and sort of moderate use, like don't eat all the time. Like when you do finally sit down to a big, say, Chinese meal with lots of rice in it, it's one big dinner. It's not like you're sucking down snacks as we are now where we're grabbing carby snacks all the time. You go to work and there's a box of donuts and then you're passing out the candy left over from Halloween and then there's this and there's that. It's just everywhere. You can't go buy a hammer without a candy aisle in your checkout, even at Home Depot. You're right. That's a really good point. And you know, when you try to point out to people that we shouldn't eat this stuff, a pretty natural response is, well, it's just moderation. You know, we're we're not, but it's not moderation anymore, not even close. And honestly, I think when it comes to diet, we should hold that, throw out that word entirely. I don't think moderation should be part really of our diet like language. Tremendously. It's, it's, a, it's kind of an insulting term to shut down a conversation. Yeah. Stop you thinking. Yeah. I it's um so let's you, know, you uh, don't you don't do you don't lick on lick a lead or pewter implement in moderation. You just you just steer clear of toxins and you make really better choices about optimizing the chances for for a good outcome especially when we're thinking about the future of humanity and the well-being of our teenagers who are going to bear the children and the well-being of those young parents-to-be and while they're young parents and how they're feeding their child, how we're handling the elderly and the frail and the sick. All of these factors matter even more in those situations. 
That's a that's a really good point. So let's um, let's take the time we have left in this segment and and kind of talk about the transition. You know, I think we've we've made people really aware of what the problem is. Uh, I think now what they're probably sitting back and thinking is, okay, well, what am I supposed to eat? So, you know, we're we're big on animal foods, right? It, it, yeah, and I was going to go down the list. We talked about the grains. Now we're talking about the vegetables. You know, our fruits, they're, they're just way too high in sugar today. They've been hybridized to be sugar bombs. And so it's almost like everything we look at in our food supply is some sort of a problem. Except if you truly understand the science and what we've all found, again, anecdotally, animal products don't seem to have any problems, with maybe the exception of dairy. It, and dairy isn't truly a paleo food, so I'm, I'm going to set that one aside for a little bit. Because uh, we do see problems in the form of dairy, how it's processed, a bunch of other factors that can interfere well, with certainly digestion. the commercial dairy foods definitely have problems. Yeah. And some yeah. people do okay on nice raw milk and raw milk cheeses. In fact, uh, certain studies suggest that people who eat good quality cheese live a long time with really good health. And that's been true in, in Europe, you know, in Switzerland and many European countries, they do very well on a high cheese diet. So it's possible if the rest of the lifestyle allows for the healthy immune system and a healthy digestive tract. But if you've already destroyed your digestive tract and your immune system, thanks to antibiotics and NSAIDs and other drugs and other, you know, the food problem we just talked about where you're eating too much of the wrong foods processed incorrectly and you don't have the metabolic health to handle dairy anymore, that's becoming a really common scenario. That's a, that's a very good point. I have switched almost exclusively to the highest quality A2 dairy I can find. And I find less issues with that. Now, raw A2 is even better. And I am a believer that if we consumed high quality starting from raw dairy and we didn't ultra pasteurize it and and um, homogenize it and, and start with such poor quality to begin with, I do believe that there's a ton of evidence when you look at societies around the world, societies that consume fermented dairy especially. And almost everybody that consumed dairy had multiple forms of fermented dairy because that's the way you preserve it. And when you look at them, yeah, they seem to right. have really, really good health outcomes. Yep. And they're often in, you know, societies that are big boned and, yeah. you know, good facial structure. Strong that. And yeah. Yeah. The, the, the problem comes yeah. in is that when you say, you know, look, these, these societies ate dairy and they were really healthy and we can show it. We do need to emphasize the fact that that's not the dairy you're getting down at your grocery store. Uh, you have got to go seek out. Not at out. all. That American cheese and yeah. milk. Yeah. And milk is terrible. Awful. Awful. So yeah. um, it turns out and that that's it's, sad because people have been trained to use skim milk since I was, man, I think I was 10 or 12 when my mom started buying skim milk because they said that was better. I know. And what that did really what it was doing was making milk more profitable because they could skim off the cream and sell it back to you with ice cream <laughs> at 10 times the profit. Of course. And you would still get your dairy fat, but now you would buy two products instead of one. Yeah. 
but then they told us just to stay away from that fat, you know, and it was so bad for us. So, yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing how many things we've screwed up. But we, we often, we still need fat, like butter fat is such a good, healthy fat for humans. Yes. That we're getting, like we're seeing, ice cream has been the most popular dessert in the U.S. for the last 50 years. I have to admit it's one of and my favorites. Now people favorites. are buying synthetic ice creams made of other things because we just love it. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. So kind of going back to that again, if we if we set dairy aside because we have to explain the ins and outs of dairy, but for the most part, I think we've all found that the least reactive food we can eat is meat, right? We just, we just can't seem to find any yeah. problems with it. Right. Meat, yeah. And if you could find clean seafood, that's another form of meat. It, right. Right. And you're right. That's a big issue. It's unfortunately, for a lot of people, they need the omega-3s that come from seafood. So, you know, some people are in the carnivore world are adamant that it has to be a ruminant flesh, but I don't think that's always working for everyone. And you really right. need to be listening to your own body. I have seen a lot of practitioners who focus on beef, 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 beef. And, and even those, if you're Look, if you're going to focus so heavy on beef, you should probably talk about organ meats a little what a bit too. And I hardly ever see them talk about that. You know, they're piling up ribeyes, which is fine. I eat a ton of that. But we also talk a lot and we promote organ meats and seafood. Uh, you know, again, if you look back, many, many societies gravitated towards the oceans. Living by water is where we want to be. We're happiest overlooking a body of water. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that and overlooking our lawns, which is like the prairie where the ruminants were grazing. We like that, and we love the waterscape. There's a something, true view is a river, an ocean, a lake. There's something to that. I have I have the a view of a very nice river right out my window right now. Yeah, that's a comfort to you because you can go find dinner in the river. They, I read a New York Times, uh, uh, yeah. The New York Times article for Thanksgiving like five years ago where they talked about in the era of, say, the pilgrims doing a Thanksgiving meal, it would have been loaded with eel because the rivers were so heavy with eel in the U.S. You could practically walk across the river. It was just solid eel everywhere. That's interesting. I didn't know Lots that. Food hanging out in the rivers. We, uh, so the river I'm looking at is the Columbia. It's the largest single run of oh, salmon in the pretty one. Yeah, the largest single run of salmon in the world right in front of me. So you're right. It's not even hard to go down there and find dinner. Uh, and I've actually shortcutted that process. I have a, a local, friendly Native American who does my fishing for me. You know, I call him up and say, hey, I'm having a dinner party this weekend. I need uh, two Give me, give me two 10 pounders. And, you know, on Friday morning, he shows up and I've got two 10 pound salmon cleaned and ready to go right out of the river. Wow. That's kind of nice. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, so I, I am a big believer. And if we're going to eat this carnivore thing, we should have seafood in there and we should have organ meats and we should eat nose to tail. Um, you know, it's kind of funny. We, somebody was ragging on hot dogs the other day. They're like, you don't know what pieces and parts are in there. And I'm like, yeah, you know, that's actually a good thing though. If you start with a good, healthy, well-raised animal, I'll take a hot dog, take all those parts and bits yep. and, and grind them all up. Cause I want all those. And this is an easy way to eat them. Yep. That was sort of the point of sausage and you know, you know, you turn blood into blood sausage and there's, yeah, doing this head feeds and all these yeah. kind of cold cutty things 
is in order to use the organs and the skin and the fossa and so on in a productive way. You can turn pig's feet into something amazing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Good stuff. So, all right. I think we... So, and that's fun, too. And I, I am an advocate of buying your whole animal and having that. If you want to eat nose to tail, buy a half cow or a whole yeah. pig or something and have that in your freezer and you'll learn what that means. You'll learn that there's a lot of ground beef and there's a lot of bones and you can get a lot of broth and do a lot of things with ground beef. You get these steaks and you get this whole mix of things, but there really is only one heart, one liver and so on. There, There is a sort of smallish amount of organ meat. You don't need to overdo the organ meat. I think it's getting overemphasized now because so many people are selling organ supplements and really pushing the organ concept um, past what we might need, especially if you're including eggs because eggs are very high in vitamin A. Right. Liver is very high in vitamin A. There's an upper limit to how much vitamin A you should be getting. So, you know, you don't have to take, they're delicious though. I mean, I love beef liver. I love calf liver. I love Hearts, chicken hearts. Me too. Kidneys, they're delicious. And I've got recipes in my cookbook that you can get on my website for how to cook with these foods. They're fantastic. But you don't want to overdo them. Well, it, let's. you made a good point. Let's go back again and think of the hunter-gatherers. Uh, you know, I don't know what the ratios were of like, you know, how many hunters we sent out. But let, let's take a deer, something we still can go kill today. Um, you go out and you kill the deer. You, there's only one liver. I mean, we're only going to get a little bit of that. And there's four of you guys who are going to dress it or whatever, and often they would just eat the liver and heart right there exactly. raw as a reward for hunting and have the strength to go ahead and hang this thing and gut it and <laughs> right. do all the work. It's not not nothing to dress a deer. It, it, no, it's a lot of work. To, you got to drag it out of there. I've done it. You got to drag it out of there. You got to clean it. You got to hang it up. You got to process it. You got to skin it. it. It is a lot of work, and you're right. Um, we kind of protected from the wolves the, and the dogs and the bears. Yeah. Uh, didn't we kind of mimic the carnivores? The, the alpha male and female get first dibs and they go for the organs, right? Yep. Yep. So, but you're right. And, you know, we train dogs to help us with the hunting. Dogs have been man's best friend for a long time and they get along with us because of this hunting deal where the dogs help us find and take down animals. And we would reward the dogs with the lean meats. Right. So Because there's kind of a lot of hamburger there, more than we really need, because what we want is the fat. We want the visceral fat. We yeah. want the organ meats. We want the bone marrow. We want the fattiest cuts. And the really lean meats were less important to us than we could feed. Dogs can survive on lean meat. We need fatty meat. Correct. And that's how we sort of balance this out with, with the whole nose to tail thing, is you can get a little bit higher proportion of marrow in organs, if you have a way to get rid of the excess lean meat. Good point. It, you know, when you when you figure it out, it all just makes sense, doesn't it? It does snap into picture. Like, it makes sense that the dog is such an important character in our hunting and survival. Yeah, yeah, really is. All right. So I think what we've we identified. We still do that for sport. I mean, you, you do, you train horses and train dogs and train animals to, on these, you know, fox hunts and other forms of hunting because it became such a center, centerpiece of civilized culture is to have an organized way to feed everybody. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. So I think what we've identified up to this point is that Really, anybody listening to us, no matter what your diet is, no matter how many improvements you've made in your diet, 
This is still an issue for virtually everybody. And and you've even made the point that this stuff builds up over years and years and decades. And if we go cold turkey on oxalates, we may even create more problems, right? Yeah, so we've been raised on chocolate and potatoes and peanuts, and that is happening on a daily basis. You get sent to school with a peanut butter sandwich every day, and in the weekends, it's the roasted nuts. There's this, all these the potatoes everywhere, the tater tots, fries, and chips, and we overdo them. And uh, that, if, especially if you have a history of using pain medication or antibiotics, your absorption rate of those uh, oxalates that are in those foods can be elevated past what we consider normal. So the amount of oxalate that's getting into your bloodstream and into your body can be quite high, even with just standard food. So by the time you're in your 50s, you guaranteed have oxalate accumulations, and it just gets more and more over time. And, you know, and then more and more is dependent on how much you've eaten and how much you've absorbed and how much is left behind in your body because you've been eating it so consistently every day, all year long, your body's never really had the opportunity to clean it out. And when you go away from these high oxalate foods and you adopt a, a low oxalate diet, which for some people is a carnivore diet, now your body's really excited to finally clean out the oxalate deposits that are hanging out in your liver and your joints and your bone marrow and your thyroid gland and your testes and you name it, the bone spurs, the, the vertebra, it can be and it probably is almost anywhere and everywhere. This is a problem because it's alerting the body to the fact that it's now got to go after particulate poisons, defects in your tissues. This nanoparticulate problem is a constant immune stimulant. And you can start turning up immune activity and having too much immune action in the body that can lead to more problems. So you don't want to necessarily mess with all those crystals in a very quick kind of way. You want it to, to happen in a more natural, the body's just turning over tissue and doing day-to-day maintenance and finding crystals and removing them, not going after them as a desperate plan to finally save you from all this mess. So by transitioning away from our high oxalate diet that most of us are on nowadays, is something moderate, moderated will improve the health of Every tissue in the body often improve how you feel, how you perform, and so on. And if you don't go all the way to zero, that seems to be a way to moderate the reversal of this toxic overload that's developed in our bodies, if that makes sense. Am I making any sense? Yeah, you've been through this journey. Uh, You really understand this topic you know, better than anybody. It's why we wanted to do this with you. Would you describe your diet today as, as carnivore-ish? Oh, for sure. For sure. I, I developed a beef allergy during these years of oxalate clearing Wow. that I think got much worse when I had COVID. And this is one of the risks of this problem of letting oxalate develop in your body because you're creating an enemy for your immune system and it causes chronic immune inflammation and chronic problems. And so during the time of oxalate clearing, your immune system can be so on fire that it can start expanding the number of things that it's reacting to as part of being on too much. Yeah. And I think I was ignoring the fact that every third time I would have a nice big carnivore, you know, chuck roast or something, a a beef meal, it would fatigue me afterwards and I would just kind of lose it and just feel sort of terrible. And I was 
it didn't happen every meal and I didn't want to believe it. So I kind of like kept it in my, kept noticing it and wondering, wondering, this is, is this beef really agreeing with me or not? Right. And it took me a long time to really recognize it. And it was later on after I had COVID that I was trying to deal with this back damage I have, which I attribute to the oxalate poisoning where I've got lots of issues in my spine. So I had an MRI of my neck and they said, oh, by the way, there's a giant two and a half centimeter something cyst on your thyroid gland. And that was after I developed uh, a bleaching of certain skin on my body and then developed itching, um, vaginal or not vaginal, but like vulval itching. And I realized I've developed lichen sclerosis. I've got a nodule. And during this time, I was having facet joint arthritic pain from top to toe, which is a different style of back pain from what I usually have like mostly just low back pain or neck pain, but I could feel my whole spine top to toe was on fire and uncomfortable. And I, so I finally put it together because that joint arthritis, the nodule and this lichen sclerosis development, it's all got to be the beef. And the minute I stopped the beef within a week, the itching stopped, the back pain went away 90% of it. And I haven't rechecked the thyroid nodule, which I need to do because it's almost been a year since the scan. But I'm sure, you know, I had to up my thyroid medication because my thyroid is now suffering from this immune attack from me continuing to eat beef. So it was last, maybe April, that I figured out I should stop the beef. And so I switched to a fish-heavy diet because I wasn't sure about pork either at the time because those are my primary protein. Right. Because I was full carnivore beginning April 1st of 2019 for about four months and then I, and my system could not handle zero carb at all. So I, I still consider that a carnivore diet, but today I, my husband found a couple of days ago, a beautiful papaya, a nice organic papaya. And I cut it today and ate a third of a, of a large papaya. That That's a pretty generous fruit portion. That is. But I feel very good about that because I know what I'm doing. But and then I eat coconut products. And like yesterday, I made a wonderful sauce for shrimp that I poured over a baked filet of snapper. And that sauce consisted of some coconut milk, some sake, some coconut mana, a couple of spices, and, you know, a touch of vinegar. And it's delicious. And ginger, crystallized ginger, cut up. So it's like a creamy ginger sauce with the shrimp poured over the fish. Sounds wonderful. So that's, to me, that's a carnivore meal, even though it's got the coconut, which is a traditional you know, food. Human beings have been eating coconut for a long time. You know, that... that and things like sake. Like, yeah. It, mm-hmm. That's kind of where where I am on this as far as eating. Very, very animal heavy, but, but you know, making sauces and throwing in some plants. And so... I think that's a really good way to eat. I tend to ferment a lot. We actually call the way we're eating now kind of fermented carnivore. So uh, if we're going to put plants in, we we prefer to have them fermented, not 100%, but pretty close. So if somebody's, I know we only have a couple more minutes today. Uh, if somebody is, is, they've been through this with us, you know, they've done kind of the paleo, the keto, the carnivore, they've gotten healthier and healthier over time. I think this is like one more big step we can make. So real quick, with just a couple of minutes we have left, you just mentioned a few things that you add in to your carnivore diet plant-wise. And and part of this is, is, is keeping some oxalates in there, right? So that we don't have that big dumping. So what, what kind of foods, if somebody's yeah. eating carnivore-ish, what are your real go-to plant foods that you would recommend starting with? 
If they're definitely having signs that they are maybe too low in oxalate and having some symptoms, I usually start off with recommending tea, black tea for people who aren't allergic to tea. Often a double tea bag kind of strength, these two tea bags, because it's the number, amount of tea affects how much oxalate is in the tea, not how long you've brewed it. For some people who really can't handle any of foods at all because they're so overreactive, just adding some vitamin C back, like maybe 100 milligrams three times a day, vitamin C degenerates into oxalate in the body, and that can do multiple things because you're not just giving yourself a little oxalate with a very modest uh, repeated dose of vitamin C. You're also providing vitamin C to that inflammatory state, which is more immune cells running around. Immune cells are the cells that need that vitamin C. So when you have a lot of inflammation, you actually need more vitamin C, and that can also help the system resolve its inflammatory attack if it's getting what it needs there. Um, And it might even help with the acidity. So another food that's really important is something like lemons because the citric acid in lemons helps to alkalize the body. And when you're inflamed, you really need to correct the acidity that comes with this inflammation. Oxalate creates acidity that breaks uh, collagen fibers and causes, you know, connective tissue weakness. So we, we don't want this acidity from the oxalates and from the inflammation. So if you can't use lemons, then often we recommend citric acid supplements, minerals, which are alkalizing both because of the calcium is a chalky alkaline substance and so is the citrate turns to bicarbonate. We use bicarbonate. But from the point of view of adding foods that have oxalate, one clementine, 20 milligrams of oxalate, that's an example of something. Two bites of sweet potatoes or, you know, about three tablespoons. With um, boiled red skin potatoes, you can have like a cup of them. There's a table in the back of my book around page 288 that gives the high oxalate foods in doses that adds like 20 milligrams or 30 milligrams uh, to your to your meal. So, um, for example, in that table, you'll see um, raw apricots. A half cup of apricots gives you 30 milligrams of oxalate. Um, blackberries, you can have you know, two weight ounces of blackberries will give you the 30 milligrams of oxalate. Figs, artichoke hearts, things like that. So there's a there's a whole chart there designed to help you say, oh, you know what, I can have a whole cup of boiled carrots and that adds 30 milligrams of oxalate in a conscious way to a maybe otherwise too low oxalate diet. And if you do that kind of little, what I call a punch dose that the body can hear, that's a signal where the body's reading, oh, okay, you're back into that vegetable patch again and here come the oxalates. And that tells the body that there isn't as much room to remove oxalates from the tissues and seems, in many cases, seems to work. Got it. You know, it makes sense. So I I had another question here and you answered it with that answer. I didn't realize there were so many fruits with oxalates. Yeah, and most of the fruits, though, are um, containing more of the crystals and less of the oxalic acid. So they're not as bad. Like they're less, the soluble oxalic acid is what gets into your bloodstream. The oxalate crystals, now they can dissolve a bit in the stomach acid and get some of it gets absorbed, but mostly, and when as long as it's a whole crystal, it's mostly just sharp sandpaper that's uh, abrasive and mechanically difficult, but it's not necessarily getting into your liver, but just irritating your digestive tract. So fruits, I mean, that can be considered a downside too. 
Um, but the solubility in the clementine is only 11% soluble and compared to something like the apricot is 43% soluble. So you may find you get different results playing with these different foods and you can see in the chart which ones are really high in solubility. Like there's a, uh, a number for plantain where you saute plantain in butter and that's 100% soluble. So, you know, not even three tablespoons of sautéed plantain is 30 milligrams of oxalate and it's 100% soluble according to that one test. Now, we don't have enough tests of these foods to know how variable the food is and so on. So the numbers are there for, you know, for the for yeah. the basic theory, not because it's a precise thing. Got it. So how about bananas? Well, like peanut butter is really high in solubility, you know, so two t- teaspoons of peanut butter is 20 milligrams of oxalate. Wow. Wow. Yeah. All right. How about bananas? Wow. Bananas are interesting because they're, most of the tests are kind of low where one banana is about nine milligrams of oxalate, but then there's this one test that said it was 25 milligrams of oxalate. <laughs> and you'll notice in the book that there's lots of historical things with bananas. One was the ancient hunters in Africa would soak their, their arrowheads in the bark, they'd stick them in the bark of the banana tree and get them saturated with oxalic acid and then be able to paralyze animals that they shot with the arrow. Wow. And so there's potentially a lot of oxalic acid in in various parts of the banana tree. Uh, And in another example in the book, I talk about how these researchers were using dried banana peels collected from like Malaysian markets to use the oxalic acid in the banana peel is what they call a bioabsorbent that would pull the heavy metals out of contaminated water and be part of a filtration system for cleaning contaminated water and turn banana peels into a marketable product for the poor farmers to sell. So bananas definitely have a lot of oxalate and the ones that we're eating and testing, we think they're not too bad, but Got it. We don't know, like ripeness or other yeah. factors that affect it because we don't have enough tests. Good, good point. Um, you know, I did see an article the other day, and it's so hard to tell what's real anymore or not. But somebody, the vegans, <laughs> had some sort of an idea. They they kind of left the banana peels out, and they get you know brown spots all over them, and then they were frying oh, them. And they make bacon with it. They made bacon with it. That sounds so awful. It's terrible. It's terrible. The skin of of plants and fruits is always fairly toxic, it, and it, usually that's where the oxalates are hanging out is in the skin. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think it's a terrible idea, and the vegan world is teaching itself how to use banana peels as if it was human food. I mean, I don't think even the gorillas will eat the peel. Probably not. I think you not. give a banana to the gorilla and he'll peel it. Right. I guess we... we um, this is, there are some scary trends out there, which is what compels me to try to share this information. Absolutely. And that's why we appreciate you joining us. I know we got to cut you loose. We, we both have to get on with our day today. We're going to do another segment of this. Um, so there, there's more coming and we'll we'll pull it all together. And uh, I think this is just going to be this this three part, four part miniseries is just going to be a really good resource for people that they can go back to. Well, it's always fun to hang out with you, Kevin. Thank you for having me. We're looking forward to next time. It's been a great time. I always learn something. I'm looking forward to next time. So we will see you then. Take care. Bye bye. Right. Take care. We're going to wrap this up. 
We'll see you soon. Be safe, be profitable, be fit and healthy. Always do the hard work and master the journey.